According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in Jeremiah this morning, Jeremiah chapter 25, almost halfway through, 52 chapters, and so far we've covered one chapter per week. We're up to chapter 25. It'll be a little bit more difficult than last week where we had just a 10-verse chapter. I'm really excited. There's one in the early 40s, like 42 or 43, something like that. That's uh, four verses or five verses. It's the tiniest chapter in the world. Maybe the easiest Sunday we'll ever have. You know, we'll take five minutes, teach it, and then uh, I don't know what we'll do. Watch, I'm going to go long that Sunday. We're going to spend an hour and 20 minutes and... Jeremiah chapter 25, the word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, from the thirteenth year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, even to this day, these twenty-three years The word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken to you again and again and again, but you have not listened. And the Lord has sent to you all his servants, the prophets, again and again, but you have not listened nor inclined your ear to hear. And I think about the patience of Jeremiah who kept faithful again and again and again, and every other prophet they sent who only had two agains, they only stayed faithful again and again. It seems to me like this weeping prophet here went the extra mile and has put up with an awful lot in 23 years of nobody listening to you. And at what point do you just throw in the towel and say, Lord, no one's listening? Well, Jeremiah doesn't, and the Lord won't let him. And uh, and there's more to go, by the way, because, uh, you know, we're talking about the fourth year of King Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim reigns 11 years, and then there's Jehoiachin after that, and there's Zedekiah after that until the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. So he's, uh, he's just getting started in some respects, and uh, what's in front of him is going to be more difficult than what's behind him. And uh, these are lessons that uh, we, need, we need to learn in our day and age, and I take them very, very personally. And uh, I'm not quite to 23 years yet. I'm about ready to wrap up my 21st year. And I can thankfully say that, uh, in my case anyway, people have listened, and, uh, and I'm thankful for that. So let's open with a word of prayer. Let's ask the Father to bless our time together, and then we can study the text here today. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing that we have to assemble together. We thank you, Father, for the messages of Isaiah and Jeremiah, messages that are alive and powerful today as they ever, ever were. And Father, uh, we're seeing these things unfold, and we're praying hard on behalf of our nation, and we're seeking your will, Father, uh, in observing whether we are under Isaiah circumstances or Jeremiah circumstances, what it is that's in front of us. And uh, Father, it's uh, without your truth, it's reason to be fearful, but with your truth, there is no fear. I thank you, Father, that perfect love casts out all fear, and we have the blessings of stability that come in the grounding of the Word of God. So bless us in your truth on this day. Ground us in your Word. Uh, provide for us that perfect love. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's take a look at verses 1 through 11. After 23 years of rejected ministry... Jeremiah is going to proclaim a 70-year captivity. And so uh, this is what he has to tell them, even though they're not going to listen this time either. (laughs) All right. You have not listened. And um, he has sent to you all his servants, the prophets, again and again, but you have not listened, nor inclined your ear to hear, saying, Turn now, everyone from his evil way and from the evil of your deeds, and dwell on the land which the Lord has given to you and to your forefathers forever and ever. And do not go after other gods to serve them and to worship them, and do not provoke me to anger with the work of your hands, and I will do you no harm. Verse 7, yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, in order that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. 
And this is an, a marvelous connection, provoking him. Well, last hour we were talking about mocking him, all right? And this is, a, a, I think, a neat tandem between Galatians 6 and, and Jeremiah 25. In Galatians 6, we're told uh, to not be deceived. God is not mocked and not to mock the Lord in our carnality. Here, it's provocation. I think it's a, it's a, a twin concept here in tandem, one with another. Therefore, and, and, and the, the provocation here with the work of your hands to your own harm, what I find amazing is how many people get religious when they're in more rebellion than ever before. And they want to stand on judgment day and say, Lord, Lord, look at what I did. And I did this and I did that and I did this other thing. And uh, he says, depart from me, I never knew you. In uh, some of the saddest words of the entire Bible. All right, verses 8 through 11. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts. Remember what that name is? That's his battlefield name. He's the Lord God of the armies. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, declares the Lord. I will send to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant. What a title for a pagan king. My servant. And I will bring them against this land and against its inhabitants and against all these nations round about. And I will utterly destroy them and make them a horror and a hissing and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of joy and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land will become a desolation and a horror, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. And so there's the first reference to 70 years. And we have a prophecy that's given here. And the 70-year prophecy has its fulfillment. And these are blessings for us to study in our eschatological studies, to study the short-term prophecies, the long-term prophecies. Everything that was supposed to happen after 70 years happens after 70 years. And that should be an encouragement for believers that are still studying the eschatology of Jeremiah, the new covenant, the millennial kingdom, all the things that haven't happened yet. We have assurance of the long-term prophecies by virtue of the literal fulfillment of the short-term prophecies as we uh, work our way through and as we understand it. Now, this message is contemporaneous with other messages in Jeremiah. In fact, we'll see that same expression in Jeremiah 36, in Jeremiah 45, and in Jeremiah 46. Remember, this book is not chronological, it's not sequential. And sometimes it's frustrating to have different chapters out of order chronologically because Jeremiah uh, compiled his text thematically. And these first 24 chapters have a theme, or the first 25 chapters have a theme. Chapters 26 through 29 have more of the the, the narrative of his afflictions and his persecutions. Uh, There's themes that are developed in the different sections here of the book. And so I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this, but we'll just spot it for what it is. You remember what we read in verse 1, it's the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that is the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. This is how they did their calendars back then, all right? And, we, and it might be frustrating to us today. We say, can't you just give it a good, you know, Christian date? <laughs> can't you tell us this was, you know, May 25th of whatever particular year? All right? They didn't have those calendars back then. This is how they tracked it. Now we can create a proleptic equivalent to go back, uh, like I do a lot with the crucifixion, but um, be that as it may, they would measure things by the year of the king. All right, so we're now in the in the uh, eighth year of of, uh, of Obama, and next year will be the first year of whoever. Okay, and we don't count things that way in 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 our calendar, but that's how they did back then. And they would equate. All right, the fourth year of Jehoiakim is the first year of uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Also, there's the uh, 13th year of Josiah mentioned in verse 3, another calendar reckoning, when, when uh, Jeremiah began his earthly ministry, probably as a boy, as a 10-year-old boy or a, a 13-year-old boy himself, which we talked about in, uh, in chapter 1. All right, in Jeremiah 36, a message comes in the same time frame. So stay tuned for this. We'll deal with this in uh, 11 weeks or so. Um, in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, take a scroll and write on it. All right, and then we'll have a, a message that follows that. Jeremiah 45. This is a marvelous year, by the way. 605 BC, if you want to give it a, a BC date. 
Jeremiah 45. Here's our short chapter, five verses. This is the message which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to Baruch, all right, the son of Neriah, when he had written down these words in a book at Jeremiah's dictation in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, saying, and then we have the four verses there to Baruch. Chapter 46, that which came as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet concerning the nations, to Egypt concerning the army of Pharaoh, Necho, king of Egypt, which was by the Euphrates River at Carchemish, or Carchemish, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, defeated in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. Significant year. 605 B.C., one of those hinge years in human history. One of those hinge years we look back to, like we look back to the Battle of Marathon or Thermopylae or, or uh, Charles Martel defeating the Muslims in France or some of these key years that, that really, had they gone another direction, the whole course of world history would have been different on the other side. Carchemish is one of those hinge moments. All right, At the time, it was the largest battle ever fought between two forces and, and the number of soldiers brought to bear against one another. And uh, marks the end of the Assyrian Empire, marks the rise of Babylon, marks uh, a transition of a lot of things. All right. Anyway, we have uh, the, the history to understand here. It also, by the way, serves in the introduction of the book of Daniel, in Daniel 1.1. And uh, we'll see who's paying attention and who's asleep already. Daniel 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his, of his God. And the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldee and the Chaldeans. And so this is how Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are taken captive. They're, they're brought as hostages this year to uh, Babylon and held as hostages to guarantee uh, uh, Jehoiakim's good behavior. Now, those of you uh, that were paying attention uh, will have noticed that in Daniel 1.1, it's cited as the third year, whereas in Jeremiah and all those other passages, it's cited as the fourth year. So we panic, and we, we get all upset, and we're in a froth and a, and a dither, and, and, and we're terrified because the unbelievers can point to us and mock our Bible and say, see, your Bible has mistakes in it. No. Not at all. In fact, this is part of God being genius and how smart God is. Because, see, there are two ways to count the years of a king's reign. And the Babylonians used, one's called an ascension year, one's called a non-ascension year formula for calculation. And so uh, in Israel, the Jews followed one method, but in Babylon, the, the Babylonians followed a different method. See, so if you count the ascension year, then you would have one extra number. But if you don't count the ascension year, then you have one less number. The third year is the fourth year, depending upon how you count it. See, I became pastor in November of, of 1995. All right, well, so do I count 1995? Is that my first year? It was just a, you know, a month and a half, you know, half of November and all of December. So does that count as, as a whole year? Or do I count 1996 as my first year? In the first, in the, in the first year of, of Bob, pastor of Austin Bible Church, 1996, okay? Um, and then, but we count 1995 as an ascension year, see? And in large respects, by the way, this, this is part of the evidence and the testimony as to a 6th century Babylonian authorship of the book of Daniel. All right, that if it was a pious Maccabean Jew in the second century who was creating a forgery and whatever, whatever, um, he would not have known about the Babylonian dating methods and would have used something to bring it in conformity with, with Jeremiah, to bring it in conformity with Second Kings, to bring it in conformity with the rest of the Hebrew Scriptures. But Daniel's insistence on calling this the third year of King, Jehoi uh, King Jehoiakim is extraordinary. 
because it testifies to the uh, the language and literature of the Chaldeans. It testifies to the uh, political realities of Babylon, of which Daniel was was familiar. And Daniel was a Babylonian politi- politician. All right. I don't know what allergies are in the air, but I've got a lot of them this morning. And pray that we get through with this. All right. So in the third year or the fourth year, depending on how you count it, um, Nebuchadnezzar is going to come, and he's going to take these hostages away. And it's a, it's a pivotal moment in Old Testament history. Seventy years of captivity. Seventy years are spoken of here in verse 11. They're going to be spoken of again in chapter 29. Seventy years of captivity are explained in Chronicles as the Lord's provision to the land for its years of missed Sabbaths rest. Remember, every seven years was to be a Sabbath rest. Every seven years they were not to plant their crops. They were supposed to let the fields rest, and then the land itself was going to be given a rest when you study it out. In fact, this was in accordance with the warnings that were given by Moses years before. We have the warnings in Leviticus 25 and Leviticus 26. We have the the need to give the land a rest. And these are passages that we better pay attention to. We've we've highlighted it several times in the book of of Jeremiah. What happens when the land becomes defiled? What happens when the land is polluted? Jeremiah was, was, uh, you know, the original... um, uh, green prophet, if you will, <laughs> uh, concerned about uh, environmental impact, concerned about uh, the environmental impact, the damage that's done to the planet, not by industry and capitalism, but by human sin, in rebellion against the Word of God. And it leaves a land defiled, particularly fornication and innocent blood. Violence and fornication will defile the land. And we've seen it again and again and again, affecting the trees, the birds, the animals, the plants, the land itself. Here we find that the land needs a rest, particularly the covenant land of Israel requires a rest. So um, I'm still in Jeremiah 25. We'll come back to 29.10. We'll see the message that comes here. Notice in Jeremiah 29... Uh, These are the words of the letter which Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the rest of the elders of the exile, the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the court officials, the princes of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the smiths had departed from Jerusalem. We talked about that last week, that 597 B.C., captivity that came place, 10,000 that were carried away there with Ezekiel and King Jehoiachin and, and all the rest. And so this letter was sent by the hand of Elisah, the son of Shaphan, and Gamariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, saying. And so it's kind of interesting. I think Zedekiah is dispatching a letter, and it's, you can read it a couple of different ways. Um, Quite possibly, Zedekiah had his own business that he was conducting in in the letter that he sent. And Jeremiah uh, attached his on on the same messengers and said, oh, carry this as well. (laughs) All right. Remember back then, if you wanted word, they didn't have email or Twitter or any of that other stuff. They had to send, uh, you know, put quill to parchment and and somebody had to physically go there with, uh, with the message. Now, in the process of this, Verse 4, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses, live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and become fathers of sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. In other words, move on with temporal life living. You're going to have a 70 year captivity, live a normal life. Live the life that they're being denied in Jerusalem. Verse 7, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will have welfare. All right, this is our principle. I'll I'll preach this in four weeks, but we need to be praying for the city of Austin, because as goes Austin, so go we. All right, if the job market tanks, our families are going to struggle. So we want Austin to thrive, not because they've earned it or deserved it, but because we're praying for them, because this is where we are. Anyway, this is the context here. 
Don't listen to the false prophets. Listen to the real prophets. Verse 10, thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. All right, we don't claim that as the United States of America. We have principles out of that, but this is a promise given to the captives. They're going to have normal family life, children and grandchildren to bring back with them when the 70 years are complete. All right. If I was to preach something here that's going to be fulfilled in 70 years, uh, a lot of us wouldn't be here in 70 years. But the youngest ones here would be, and maybe others, who knows? All right. I don't want to be here that long. But uh, Daniel and some of them, they survived the whole 70 years and their whole captivity. They were young enough as they were carried away, and they saw two or three generations come in the, in the process. It's interesting, though, to note the correspondence, the written correspondence. It's, it's interesting to note the communication that they had, that they were in touch with one another, that uh, information was conveyed between Jerusalem and Babylon. And it was contemporaneous. Jeremiah with Daniel with Ezekiel, they were contemporaries and they were in communication with each other beyond anything that the Holy Spirit could have communicated. You know, Obviously, if you've got prophets in different places, they can preach the same thing because they've got the same Holy Spirit giving them this, these messages. But there was actual letter correspondence as well. This, is, this flies in the face of um, liberals, the theological liberals, that tell you that they were basically illiterate until they got back from Babylon, and uh, they needed the Babylonians to teach them how to write, and all this other uh, nonsense that's been thoroughly disproven, uh, but still continues to be orthodoxy in uh, the liberal churches. All right, Second uh, Chronicles, verse uh, chapter 36 Second Chronicles. Who turns to Chronicles? All right, Second Chronicles, chapter thirty-six. Verses twenty and twenty-one. You'll spot some familiar names here, like Zedekiah, Nebuchadnezzar, and um, a story here that relates very well with this because it's our story of the book of Jeremiah. And um, the captivity, they burned down the house of God in verse 19, broke down the wall of Jerusalem, and they burned all its uh, fortified buildings with fire, destroyed all its valuable articles. Those who had escaped from the sword were he carried away to Babylon. And they were servants to him and to the sons uh, and to his sons until the return of the rule of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days of its desolation it kept Sabbath until 70 years were complete. All right, so God is making up for the 70 Sabbaths, the 70 Sabbath years that Israel did not observe from the time Jer- uh, that uh, Joshua led them into the promised land, from the time they settled in the land of promise until the 586 BC, they had failed to observe the Sabbath uh, 70, uh, 70 times. And now they're going to be given this rest to the land. Um, won't spend a ton of time on this, but Leviticus 25, we've got the background. Leviticus 25. I'm going to leave my church bulletin here. Leave your church bulletin in uh, chapter 25. We'll be back to Jeremiah before you know it. Thank you for making those, by the way. They're useful. Leviticus 25. The Lord spoke to Moses at Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I shall give you, then the land shall have a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its crop. But during the seventh year the land shall have a Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field nor prune your vineyard. And this is the expectation. Your harvest after growth you shall not reap, and your uh, grapes of untrimmed vines you shall not gather. The land shall have a sabbatical year. And this is expected. You shall have the Sabbath products of the land for food, yourself, your male and female slaves, on your hired man, your foreign resident, those who live as aliens within you. These verses have a lot to say about our current immigration debate too, by the way, if you're interested. 
Next chapter over, chapter 26, verses 33 through 35. And what happens if you don't? All right, in a context that backs up to verse uh, 27. But in any event, if they, if they are faithless under Mosaic law, there's consequences, and that includes captivity. And so um, if you act with hostility against me, verse 27, I will act with wrathful hostility against you. I will punish you seven times for your sins. The covenant nation is, is accountable seven times uh, that what any Gentile nation would be accountable for. And I will lay waste your cities. I will make your sanctuaries desolate. I will not smell your soothing aromas. That's verse 31. I will make your, the land desolate so that your enemies who settle in it will be appalled over it. You, however, I will scatter among the nations and I will draw out a sword after you as your land becomes desolate and your cities become waste. Then the land will enjoy its Sabbaths. Okay? The land's going to be on vacation because you guys are gone. All the days of his desolation while you were in your enemy's land, and the land will rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. And all the days of his desolation it will observe the rest which it did not observe on your Sabbaths while you were living on it. And so Moses said, hey, this is going to happen. And now Jeremiah says, look, Moses said, said it. Moses is the I told you so. And Jeremiah's showing them that this is what's going to happen. And uh, exactly the 70 years of captivity provides for that. Also, 70 years of captivity were distressing to Daniel. In Daniel 9.2, we read about this. But nothing compared to the message of the 77s that Daniel receives and records at the end of that same chapter. So let's take a few minutes to refresh this in Daniel chapter 9. Now, we've taught this repeatedly, not only in a Daniel class, but it comes up in other classes as well. Daniel chapter 9. One of the most pivotal chapters in all of Scripture. Uh, much of uh, prophecy hinges on this chapter. And the message of 77s is vital. And how, you, how carefully you handle it or how sloppily you handle it will probably result in one theology or another, depending on uh, who you are and what church you're going to. But uh, we have uh, a calendar in this chapter that spells things out, including decrees that are issued and destruction that takes place and the coming millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. But you'll note, as Daniel 9 begins here, in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus of Median descent. This is Darius the Mede. And all the know-it-alls and scholars and experts and mockers, they came with their mocking, and they, they doubted this guy's existence for a long, long time until recent, in the 20th century even, we've locked in on precisely the, uh, the general that this, uh, named Gubaru, I think, the, the Persian, the Median general that served, uh, that served uh, Cyrus. So he's been identified, and we know who he is. Um, and in his first year, he was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans. He was appointed the, the uh, ruler over this conquered territory once the Persians threw down the Babylonians. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books. In the books. What books? Scripture. Okay. What books? They were illiterate until they came back from Babylon. What books? The Scriptures. I observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Now he doesn't have Chronicles, but he's got Jeremiah and he's got Leviticus. He has the books, plural. He's engaged in Bible study. By the way, this passage is, is vital for us to, in, in Old Testament canonicity studies. And I think it's, it may be part of why Daniel's hated so much. There's other reasons why Daniel's hated so much. Uh, the Jews themselves hated this book because the uh, Christians were using it against them in the, in the first couple centuries of, uh, of, of Christianity, of the, of the New Testament. And it didn't take long, and, and the Jews themselves moved the book of Daniel out of the prophets and over to the writings section of the, of the Tanakh and have promptly been ignoring it ever since. <laughs> okay? In the Middle Ages, they admitted, they said the 77s are done, and, and uh, we deny that they were done with Jesus in the first century, but we can't tell you what, what happened after that. All right, Christians were using this chapter in their evangelism of Jewish people. And we can do the same thing today. 
But uh, be advised, if you're, if you're going to talk Daniel with, with a Jewish friend, you know more about their book than they do. You've studied it more than they study it. Because it does not come up. This chapter does not come up in their, in their readings. All right? So he, he's going to get distressed. Seventy years. So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and I confessed. This is intercessory confession. Confessing the sins of others. And Daniel's confessing an entire nation's worth of sins. That's a lot of sin. That's a lot of confession. That's a lot of intercession. And we have a similar task in front of us because we've got a large nation with a lot of sin. Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps this covenant and loving kindnesses for those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly, and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the peoples of the land. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us open shame. And notice, as it is this day. You know, 70 years are going by and they're still the biggest sinners they've ever been. They haven't repented yet. And it's breaking Daniel's heart. To the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away and all the countries to which you have driven them because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against you. Open shame belongs to us, O Lord, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers because we have sinned against you. We have rebelled against him. Verse 10, nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord to walk in his teachings in which he has set before us through his servants, the prophets. So we haven't obeyed. We haven't confessed. Everything has come upon us. Verse 11, Indeed, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, not obeying your voice. So the curse has been poured out on us along with the oath, which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God. For we have sinned against him. What we just read there in Leviticus, he says it's all being fulfilled. Here's Daniel engaged in a massive study of all of Scripture. I think he had access to all of it. The entire Hebrew canon that existed in that, in that day and age. Because he's combining Moses with Jeremiah and doing all this. And so he's got a conundrum, right? He says, we're getting everything that we're deserving. We're getting everything that you said was going to happen. We're coming to the end of the 70 years. How can we possibly go back? You promised 70 years, but we're still the same rebels we were back then. And he's got a conundrum here. Daniel can't, if he, you know, Daniel, if he was God, he wouldn't bring him back. But God promised to bring him back after 70 years. And so he's in turmoil here. And so he's uh, begging and pleading and crying out and interceding. Down to verse 20. While I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God on behalf of the holy mountain of my God. Notice that? Jewish people, Jerusalem. Okay, that's Daniel's people. Don't try to inject the church into this chapter. While I was still speaking in prayer, then Gabriel shows up, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my dream, in my extreme weariness, about the time of the evening offering. It's a bit of an assumption on my part, but I think he started first thing in the morning. I think he started pouring out his heart with the morning sacrifices, and he's still praying by the evening sacrifices. And so now we have a time frame for how long does it take an angel to fly from heaven to earth, okay? And this is important for other studies. So um, he gave me instruction and talked with me and said, Oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. He was praying all day. How long does it take to get an answer to your prayers? He was praying all day. And uh, Gabriel says, as soon as you started praying, the Lord gave the word, and I, I launched myself. I took off flying. And then he arrives here by the time of the evening sacrifices. All right? Now, that's just a little kind of fun and excitement. It gives you a, a perspective for how angels tra traverse the dimensions and, and how they travel from point A to point B. Um, 
But we're going to come up in another chapter where he gets ambushed and takes him three weeks. He doesn't come for three weeks. And, and Daniel already knows it only takes a day to get here. And he prays for a day, and he prays for a second day, and he prays for a third day, he prays for three whole weeks until Gabriel finally shows up because uh, he'd been arrested and held in angel jail. And uh, there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of angelic information there that I find extraordinary. So, you are highly esteemed. I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. And he says, essentially here, if I can paraphrase, don't worry about the 70 years. Start praying for the 77s. Okay? 77s have been decreed for your people and your holy city. Who's that? The Jewish people? Jerusalem? Don't you dare shove the church into this chapter. All right? Your holy city, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, to anoint the most holy place. Take these, I think there's six, uh, objectives that have to be fulfilled in the 70th seven. Match them up to the seven I wills we saw last week that Yahweh promises. And I think you've got uh, a remarkable study right there. All right, and then the, the calendar. And in verses 25 through 27, we've got Christ, the crucifixion of Christ, the destruction of Jerusalem, the rise of Antichrist, the covenant, the betrayal of the covenant, all the tribulation, all the things here. It's a powerful chapter. And this whole thing gets launched because Daniel is studying the chapter we're studying this morning. Isn't that great? Daniel is studying the chapter we're studying this morning, and it's throwing him into this into this turmoil. It's throwing him into this into this um, awful, awful place. You know, do we get that wrapped up in the things we're studying, or do we just kind of view it academically and say, "Eh, okay, that's cool." Next week, chapter twenty-six. Okay, or do we take week by week, word by word? Are we are we crushed by the sense that the God of the universe is speaking to us and we are accountable for what he's telling us and we must live what we're learning? Daniel's distress here, I think, is uh, noteworthy. All right, well, this is what we're dealing with. Verses 1 through 11. After 23 years of rejected ministry, Jeremiah proclaims a 70-year captivity. Next, verses 12 through 14. Jeremiah 25, 12 through 14. Then it will be when 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon. It won't be Nebuchadnezzar by then. He'll be dead. It'll be um, the fellow that sees the writing on the wall, right? Belteshazzar. I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, declares the Lord, for their iniquity in the land of the Chaldeans. I will make it an everlasting desolation. I will bring upon that land all my words which I have pronounced against it, all that is written in this book which Jeremiah has prophesied against all the nations. We haven't gotten there yet, by the way, because it's chapter 50 and 51 in, uh, in our Bibles. But it's all the prophecy that's spoken of against the Chaldeans. For many nations and great kings will make slaves of them, even them, and I will recompense them according to their deeds and according to the work of their hands. So God's purpose for Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon will give way to his wrath upon eschatological Babylon. Now, here's another study. We want to stop here and take three or four weeks to break this down to show how sometimes prophecies are near-term and long-term at the same time. How sometimes there can be words against historical Babylon with a greater fulfillment down the road in the tribulation. All right? Can't do that today. It's not our format in this class. But understand, there's Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon, and the Persians defeated them. Okay? That night of the writing on the wall, they, they broke through and they, they conquered, and then Darius was made king, and, and the Persians came in, right? The Persians let the Jews go back to Jerusalem. Um, we go from Babylon to Persia to Greece to Rome. But in that process, the land of Babylon does not become the, the abomination and, and the, the, the horror that it will eschatologically, that it will in the tribulation. All right? So we have near-term and, and, and long-term prophecies. 
that are unfolded in these verses. Nebuchadnezzar is called the servant of Yahweh. And although he's called the servant of Yahweh, Babylon, the nation, is the enemy of Yahweh from Genesis to Revelation. Nebuchadnezzar stands as an as a exception to the rule. Nebuchadnezzar is a moment of grace. It's an amazing testimony. I think he's led to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ by the evangelism of Daniel, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sees that fourth man in the fire, and he gets saved. Babylon is the enemy of Yahweh from Genesis to Revelation. All, I mean, the early, earliest stories in the Bible are the Tower of Babel, Genesis chapter 10 and verse 10, Genesis 11 and verse 9. The global rebellion against Yahweh continues today in the United Nations. All of the, the globalist endeavors to bring us all together under one world governance. And I'm looking at two candidates right now, and I don't like either one of them, but at least one of them is not a globalist. All right. One of them is a nationalist, and he's mocked for being a nationalist. How dare he talk about borders? How dare he talk about national sovereignty? Well, there you go. If one's a globalist and one's a nationalist, you've got principles of Scripture to apply. All right. And all the way to the end. Revelation 14, 16, 17, 18. All these chapters of Revelation, we have eschatological Babylon, both in a religious and a commercial form. In fact, uh, Jerusalem is the city that's mentioned most, more than any other city anywhere in the Bible. It's not even close. Thousands of references to Jerusalem in the Bible. But second, behind Jerusalem, is Babylon. All right? Babylon has more references than any other city anywhere in the Bible except, you know, outside of Jerusalem. And it stands opposed, opposed to Yahweh at every turn. So... Um, in any event, here in chapter 25, he's called the servant of Yahweh. In chapter 27, he's going to be called the servant of Yahweh. 27.6. And uh, in chapter 43, he's called the servant of Yahweh. I've given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant. I've given him also the wild animals of the field to serve him. Remarkable. Two kings, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon and Cyrus of Persia. They're called servants of Yahweh. Cyrus is also called the shepherd, the shepherd of Yahweh. And that's extraordinary. The only Gentile to be given such a title. Now, the specific prophecies regarding Babylon, um, they're recorded in the 110 verses that span chapters 50 and 51. So I'm not going to take the time this morning to go through it. Uh, We'll be there before you know it. 25 weeks from now, we'll get to it. And uh, we'll see the specific content of these messages and, uh, and deal with it there. But we're going to see that some of it is short-term and some of it is long-term. And it's the same verses we're looking at. They're talking about the fall of Nebuchadnezzar. We're talking about the fall of Babylon. And in some of the applications, they are 6th century B.C. And in some of the applications, it's still future. The, the tribulation of Israel beyond the, the church age. Still future to us today in 2015 A.D. Or 2016. What year is this? 2016. A.D. Man, I lose track of the year. That's bad. All right, let's look at 25 through 29. This is fun. And I wonder, how did this happen? For thus the Lord, the God of Israel, says to me, Take this cup of the wine of wrath from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. Jeremiah is going to go on a tour. And he's on a tour with a cup in his hand. And the cup of wine that he makes them drink is the wine of the wrath of God. And we have themes that are introduced here, by the way, that carry all the way through into the book of Revelation. Themes that apply here in terms of cups of wrath and things that uh, I think cause more confusion than they need to cause uh, for folks that are studying Revelation, especially the the harlot and uh, the cup in her hand. And... uh, different things there. All right. So take uh, take this cup and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. They will drink and stagger and go mad because of the sword that I am that I will send among them. So verse 17, I took the cup from the Lord's hand and I made all the nations to whom the Lord sent me drink it. So he was told to do it and the text says he went and did it. And now uh, we'll get a catalog We'll get a, a listing of all the places he went. We get a, uh, or a, a travel log, I guess, a geographic survey. 
So I took the cup. And he starts with Jerusalem and the cities of Judah and its kings and its princes to make them a ruin, a horror, a hissing, and a curse, as it is to this day. All right? That is by the authorship of the book and the conclusion of the placement of Jeremiah in the canon of Scripture. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, his servants, his princes, and all his people. So after he makes, uh, probably Zedekiah, after he makes Zedekiah drink this cup, he, uh, he goes, you know, hoofing it down to Egypt. Okay? Now, is, is all of this happening in the real world? Is all of this happening physically? Is Jeremiah physically walking to all these places? Or is this happening in a vision? Is, it having, is, is he doing this in a dream? Remember last week we saw Ezekiel was transported out of body from Babylon to the temple, and he sees this stuff. He starts preaching, and a guy drops dead in, uh, in Jerusalem, and Ezekiel's preaching. And then Ezekiel returns back to his body in Babylon, and he tells him, you know, gives him the report of the guy dropping dead in, in Jerusalem. Okay? So is this something similar to that? I don't know. I go back and, back and forth in my mind that he did this literally and physically, or he did this uh, spiritually in a vision, in a dream. Uh, and if he did it uh, spiritually in a vision and a dream, uh, what kind of nightmares did these kings have the next morning, you know, um, in, as a part of this process? All right. And all the foreign people, all the kings of the land of Uz, all the kings of the land of the Philistines, even Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, and the remnant of Ashdod, Edom, Moab, and the sons of Ammon, all the kings of Tyre, all the kings of Sidon, the kings of the coastlands, which are beyond the sea, and Dedan and Tema, Buzz, and all who cut the corners of their hair, and all the kings of Arabia, and all the kings of the foreign people who dwell in the desert, and the kings of Zimri, all the kings of Elam, and the kings of Media. I think Zimri is a code for Elam, and we can talk about that as well. All the kings of Media. Most of these kings are surrounded around Jerusalem, and they're west of Babylon. But this last reference actually turns to the east. It goes east of Babylon. It goes up into the mountains of of modern-day Iran. It might be a reason why he uses code words, like Zimri is a code word. And all the kings of the north, near and far, with one another, all the kingdoms of the earth, which are upon the face of the ground, and the king of Shishak, another code, shall drink after them. All right. I want to go down to verse 29 before we start spelling this out. So verse 27, You shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Drink, be drunk, vomit, fall, and rise no more, because of the sword which I will send among you. All right, so here's the steps. <laughs> All right? And drink, and don't drink and stop drinking. Keep drinking until you're drunk. And then keep drinking some more until you vomit. And then fall down after you vomit. And as long as you've fallen down, stay down. Don't even bother getting up. And, and yeah, again, I kind of think this was in a vision, this was in a dream. But he did this to every single one of these kings. And it represents what's about to happen in the warfare, both in Nebuchadnezzar's day, that's uh, contemporaneous with, uh, with this time frame, but also eschatologically, the, hand, the, the cup of God's wrath that we see in the book of Revelation. We see its ultimate fulfillment is at Armageddon, as Jesus Christ comes and the sword comes out of his mouth and he conquers the world and, and brings, in, uh, brings in peace. Yeah, I can visualize world peace, all right? I visualize it coming as, as the sword of Jesus Christ comes out of his mouth and he conquers... Uh, evil at Armageddon. All right. So it will be, uh, verse 28, if they refuse to take the cup from your hand. I I believe it was an interactive dream. If it wasn't a vision, if it wasn't a dream, then some of these kings, you know, Pharaoh could have said, you know, drop dead, buddy. I'm not going to drink that. If they refuse to take the cup from your hand, then you will say to them, thus says Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, you shall surely drink. For behold, I am beginning to work calamity in this city, which is called by my name. If he's going to inflict wrath on Jerusalem, what do you think uh, these Gentile places have going for them? Nothing. Judgment's coming to them too, but judgment begins with the house of the Lord, and then it's going to hit these Gentiles as well. And um, I'm going to begin beginning to work calamity in this city, which is called by my name. And, I, and shall be completely free from, and shall you be completely free from punishment? You will not be free from punishment, for I am summoning a sword against all the inhabitants of the earth, declares the Lord of hosts. 
There it is, Yahweh Sevaioth. Now, you might recall 24 weeks ago when we opened up, or longer, when we began the book of Jeremiah, I highlighted a verse in Jeremiah chapter 1, it was verse 10, gets ignored a lot, but Jeremiah was appointed as a prophet to the nations. He was appointed as a prophet to the nations. And one of the great contrasts, I think, is that we can think of Isaiah and Jeremiah in many respects like we think of Peter and Paul in the sense that Isaiah was, his message was to Hezekiah and the Jews, uh, but Jeremiah is appointed as a prophet to the nations. And while he preached a lot of things about Jerusalem and Israel and so forth, they didn't listen to any of it. <laughs> Much of his ministry was spent to Gentiles, including this world tour, including uh, the end of his life where he'll live out his days in Egypt. All right, After the fall of Jerusalem, he's kidnapped and he's taken to Egypt where as far as we understand it, he lives out his days and he dies in Egypt. He was appointed as a prophet to the nations in Jeremiah 1.10. And so now we see a tour of these nations. And we're left to ponder. We'll find out when we get there. One of the questions I'm going to ask when we get to heaven. Did Jeremiah perform this work physically or in a visionary experience? See. Now it would have taken time, it would have taken weeks and months and maybe even years to travel all the distance involved to go from kingdom to kingdom, from all the places that are mentioned here in this chapter, especially to the east. Uh, that would have been the furthest distance to go to Elam and Media in those regions that are east of, uh, of Babylon. And so, uh, I don't know, I've got opinions, I've got lots of opinions, uh, but not going to die on this hill, <laughs> okay? So if you want to dispute it or argue and whatever, fine. You know, we can discuss it, uh, but no one can, can prove one way or the other uh, in this uh, case. And in some cases, too, like I mentioned last week with Ezekiel, they themselves didn't know. Paul was puzzled. He said he got caught up to the third heaven. He said, in the body or out of the body? I don't know. You know, uh, maybe, maybe I was there physically or not. Even he didn't know. Also, Man, I would love to do some work here. We don't have time for it. But Shishak is an Atbash cryptic name for Babylon. And it's kind of fun. Uh, It's hard to do in English because it's easier if you're all consonants. Um, We can't do it in English because the vowels don't end up in right places and the consonants don't end up in right places. But an Atbash is a code. It's a cipher. And and so you take the Aleph and you take the, the, the Tau. Okay, so A-T, Aleph, Tau. Basically, you write your whole alphabet out, left to right. Aleph, Beth, Gimel, Aleph, Hei, Wow, Zion, Right, you keep going all the way to Tau. And then you write it out backwards underneath there. And now you've got your code. You've got your parallel. So like in English, A is Z and B is Y and C is X. And, you know, you just write your alphabet down each direction and you've got your, your code. And so um, Shishak... Sheen, Sheen, Kaf is the Atbash code for Babel, for Beth, Beth, Lamed. All right? And uh, so we have the code. Like I say, it's tough. It's easier to do in, in Hebrew because it's all consonants. You know, uh, with, with A and Z, well, it doesn't always work in English. I'm trying to think, okay, now Bob with a B becomes a Y and an O uh, becomes a K. K-L-M-N-O. And so Y-K-Y. Y-K-Y is my at-bash for Bob. Y-K-Y. It just doesn't work. You know, yicky or something. I guess I'm yicky. Hey, it's code for yucky. All right. And... um, and this is this is this is fun. And, and it, these don't happen very often in the Bible. They do happen once or twice in a handful of places. Because they happen once or twice in a handful of places, there is no shortage of sensationalism out there, whereby people will write all kinds of books about Bible codes, and they'll make all kinds of money, and they'll be all excited about this and that and whatever else. 
They'll try to convince you that uh, when Peter talks about she who is in Babylon greets you, that that's a code for Rome, and that Peter died in Rome because, of course, he's the first pope and he dies upside down, and we have all of our, all of our great Roman Catholic traditions about Peter. Um, the, 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 the truth of the matter is there's no basis for understanding uh, his reference to Babylon as a code for anything. Certainly not this text doesn't sanction uh, the use of that there or anywhere else. But when they do show up, it's kind of fun. And so here we've got an example of it. It comes back in chapter 51. We've got an example of it. Um, we've got Leb Kamai as a cryptic name for Chaldea, also in chapter 51. As I mentioned, uh, Zimri is, uh, is an at-bash for Elam, right there in the very same verse. And I think that uh, is the clue that uh, to look for an at-bash when he starts talking about the kings of Shishak. See, and especially if you're going to be writing a letter to the Jewish people about the fall of Babylon, you don't want Babylonian officials reading about it. So you talk about the fall of Shishak, and uh, there you have it. And it makes its way through the, the censors that are reading the, the inmates' mail and when, uh, when you're including these codes. All right. And there's more. It's kind of fun. Now, the cup of wrath... The cup of wrath remains a future prophecy to those who take the mark of the beast. And it's going to be spoken of in Revelation 14.10. You and I don't have to worry about it, of course. Okay? Because if you have eternal life today, then that means you're going to be raptured when the trumpet sounds, and we're going to be gone. We'll be out of here before the beast is ever unveiled and before his mark is ever unveiled. But those that take the mark of the beast cannot get saved. They are forever excluded from eternal life. And they drink of this cup. So uh, take a look at it. Revelation 14, verse 9 Another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength. See, I think when they drank it in the Old Testament times, it was not full strength. In full strength, in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night, those who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. All right, so there's, like I say, you and I don't have to worry about it. Don't be scared. We're church-age saints. We're raptured. We're not going to have to face this. But if you have loved ones that are still unbelievers, they may have to face this. That trumpet sounds today. We're gone, and they may still be alive by the time this, uh, this unveils. We also have eschatological Babylon in both her religious and commercial expressions. Eschatological Babylon in both her religious and commercial expressions. Revelation 16, 19 speaks of this. The great city was split in three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. See, it's not only Jeremiah. Isaiah has some pretty ferocious prophecies against Babylon. Zechariah has got prophecies against Babylon. There are descriptions of Babylon's fall that don't happen in Old Testament times. Babylon continues after the Persians conquer and the Greeks conquer and Alexander goes through there and, and, and it becomes, even in the Middle Ages, you've got Jews in Babylon. They write a Talmud in the Babylonian region. All right? It becomes its waste with a tribulational fulfillment. See? And we have reasons in the text to take it that way. So, uh, remember before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. Then there's the religious expression in chapter 17, the commercial expression in chapter 18. Revelation 17, 4. Here's the woman, clothed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and the unclean things of her immorality. And on her forehead a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. 
And she's throwing a party and drinking this cup, and she's just as clueless as Belteshazzar throwing his party and drinking out of his the, the cups of the temple. And just as clueless, slated for destruction as uh, God's wrath finally comes. Revelation 18, 6. Pay her back even as she has paid. Give back to her double according to her deeds. In the cup which she has mixed, mix twice as much for her to the degree that she glorified herself and lived sensuously. To the same degree, give her uh, torment and mourning. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen and I am not a widow. I will never see mourning. Man, there's a lot of study to go into that. When a nation becomes preeminent, when they view themselves as the last remaining superpower, that nothing can touch us, we, uh, we've, everything is taken care of. I sit as a queen, I am not a widow, I will never see mourning. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot there that I find descriptive of our day and age. All right. Prose gives way to poetry as Jeremiah concludes this chapter. And I have to wonder what it was like when he and Baruch were sitting down and deciding what uh, scroll to put in which part. But thematically, we have uh, a, a poetry here, we have a poem that uh, lines up with uh, what we've already looked at. We have a poem here that speaks of the judgment of God. We've got a poem that agrees with the wrath of, uh, of God's anger, or the cup of God's wrath of his anger here, verses 30 through 38. It's, it's poetry rather than prose, but the themes continue. So I don't think it's out of place in this chapter. I think it's, it's natural and fitting that it would appear here. And I think maybe in a lot of ways it serves as kind of a capstone as the end of the first major dominant segment of the book. Because in chapters 26 through 29 we got kind of a, a little biographical sketch, a little kind of a, a section of the book that is going to document uh, his jailings and his beatings and his imprisonments and his other abuse that he goes through. So uh, verses 30 through 38. Therefore you shall prophesy against them all these words and you shall say to them, the Lord will roar from on high and utter his voice from his holy habitation. He will roar mightily against his fold. He will shout like those who tread the grapes against all the inhabitants of the earth. A clamor has come to the end of the earth because the Lord has a controversy with the nations. He is entering into judgment with all flesh for the wicked. He has given them to the sword, declares the Lord Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, evil is going forth from nation to nation, and a great storm is being stirred up from the remotest parts of the earth. All right, well, man, I'm running out of time. The judgment of God upon all flesh is reminiscent of the days of Noah and the flood. This is a global judgment. It is wrath of God upon all flesh, similar to the days of Noah. All all flesh. All of humanity comes into account. They either blessed Israel or they cursed Israel. All flesh will come into account. The nations are going to be separated, sheep and goats. And only, and only the sheep are coming into the millennial kingdom. The goats are going to hell. All right? Jesus Christ is going to cast every single one of them to hell. As it was in the days of Noah. The second advent of Jesus Christ is likened unto the days of Noah. We know that from Isaiah 54, 9. We know that from Jesus' message in Matthew 24, 37. As several Old Testament prophets employed all flesh terminology to demonstrate Yahweh's global dealings in this exact time frame and context. And so uh, do your prophecy studies related to the end times and you'll find God is dealing with all flesh and how they connect to Israel. Isaiah 40, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 66 had these all flesh expressions. Jeremiah 25, Jeremiah 32, Jeremiah 45. If you want this list, I'm going to quickly. Just email me and I'll send you this slide. Ezekiel 20, Ezekiel 21, Zechariah 2. These prophets are all addressing the all-flesh judgment, the all-flesh dealings when Yahweh deals globally with all flesh. And it closes with another shepherding emphasis like we had a couple weeks ago in Jeremiah 23. Woe to the shepherds. In Jeremiah 23, he's pronouncing woe upon the Jewish shepherds. These are Gentile shepherds. Gentile shepherds. And in verses 34 through 38, Wail, you shepherds, and cry. 
wallow in ashes, you masters of the flock. See, even a Gentile king needs to understand his role as a shepherd of the people that God has placed him over. All right, well, I'm out of time. Father, I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for this time. I thank you for this chapter. I thank you for this prophet. And Father, I thank you for equipping the saints at Austin Bible Church and everywhere. Father, we've got folks listening uh, around the world in all kinds of different places. Father, you're equipping us with uh, almost opposite messages. In Isaiah's day, they had a king like Hezekiah who was humbled, who listened, who led his nation in a revival. And in Jeremiah's day, we have Zedekiah. We have a wicked king who ignores the word, who leads his nation in apostasy. And Father, uh, whatever we have in store for us, I pray that you will equip us with both, both approaches and that we'd be ready to bear fruit, testify light, uh, to have impact as salt and light in our generation. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.